0: to the initiated. Let me preface this, 1 John, unlike the Gospel of John, which was obviously an invitation, an exhortation to know Jesus, this is to the churches, or the church. And I'll get there in a minute. Where John's Gospel was, come to know who Jesus is. We write these things so that you know that their faith, they have confidence to have faith in Jesus. Now, why would he write about their confidence in Jesus? Because some are disturbing their confidence. Some are causing them to question. Some are causing them to have doubts. And we'll get there again in a minute. But for the next three weeks, we're gonna be going through John's first letter. We won't cover all of 1 John in these three weeks. I, as I was studying this week, I realized I bit off more than I can chew. So we're looking at the first four verses, partly because I want us to get an intro. I want us to understand just like asking why First John? Well, it's not because it's a short book. It's not because Jay can get through it in three weeks because if you know me, you know I can't get through anything fast. It's not because we're in the gospel of John either, believe it or not. <laughs> I, uh, some of some of you or most of you might know, I oversee our home group fellowship ministry. Churches would call it small group ministry. There's a reason we don't refer to them as small groups. Are they smaller groups? Yes. But I don't refer to them as home group fellowships for semantics. The term small group is just, I remember thinking, it's just too small. It's too vague. It's too, even though small, broad. And it doesn't epitomize what this ministry of home group fellowship is all about. Over the last two years, this word fellowship has continually come to my mind over and over and over and over. And There's a deeper meaning to it, and it means a lot more than just community. Again, I'm not here to get into semantics, God's word is intentional. Jesus is incredibly intentional with the words he uses. And so it would do us well to understand why he uses the words he uses. What do the words he uses mean? So I plugged in the word fellowship because I felt impressed to teach on fellowship. Fellowship's been in my mind more and more on my heart the last couple of of years. So I plug it into my logos, logos, however you want to pronounce it, Bible software, And I got a list of all the times the word fellowship pops up in Scripture. That's how I stumbled on 1 John. It wasn't because we're in the Gospel of John. Again, it's not because it's a short book. It's because I wanted to teach, the Lord has impressed on me to teach fellowship. What does that mean? For us to be a fellowship. I've said this before. We don't call ourselves a church. We call ourselves a fellowship. The Bridge Christian Fellowship. John uses this word fellowship four times in the first seven verses. It just boom, boom, boom. When I saw First John and clicked on it, I went, wow, fellowship just pops off the page. I went ahead and read through the whole book. And even though we don't see the word fellowship come up again after the seventh verse, there's another word that relates to it. I think will give us a deeper understanding of what fellowship means. And it's mentioned 26 times in this little book. It's abide. The word is abide. Abide. Fellowship, relate. What do they have to do with each other? And we'll get there, Lord willing. We're gonna take the next three weeks, as I've said, to start reading through this letter for the same reasons John gave. Here's four reasons. Now, if you, again, have listened through Rick's teaching, he gives five. I'm gonna give you four. Let's see if we can find the fifth one as we go through this with God. Let that sink in. Fellowship, with God. Growing up in the church in the time that I have, I heard the cliche over and over, and it's very true, but it's still somewhat cliche. It's not a religion, it's a? <laughs> Whoa, yeah. Some of you are familiar with it too. Think about that though. To have a relationship with the God who holds the universe in his hand. And you and I have the opportunity to have a relationship with this infinite being in such an intimate and personal way. John writes this so that we may have fellowship with God. We see that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Second reason is so that we may have our joy made complete. Our joy made complete. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The third reason is so that we may not sin. That sounds good. So that we may not sin. First John chapter 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you have here, is so that we may confidently know we have eternal life. That one right there is is a problem that we see plague many believers, and it's something that I remember myself as a teenager questioning. Did I pray it right? Did I do it right? Oh, I've made mistakes. Oh, I'm struggling with this. Am I saved? John writes this so that we can have confidence in our eternal life. Now, how do we obtain that confidence? John's letter has two overarching purposes here. The the first one is to, obviously, to encourage, exhort, and to comfort. Yeah, some of you are like, Jake, the the sun's in your eyes. (laughs) Yes, it is. And I'm going to try and not move. Anyway, John writes us to encourage us. God has given us this letter to exhort us, to urge, inspire, and motivate us. And he's given us this letter to comfort us like children with his word of truth. Truth. We're gonna talk about that a lot throughout this letter. The second reason, and oftentimes this is a reason that we see sensationalized in the church these days, is to warn God's children with wisdom against deception, namely against the schemes of the devil, Satan. If you're interested in themes regarding the Antichrist, you'll want to stick around for this letter. Antichrist pops up in the second chapter of this letter. John addresses it, but that is not the focus of the letter. Or talk about the end times for the sake of the end times. Some years back, he he repeated this. There is an intentional effort to undermine the character of Jesus. And we see that. That's part of why John writes this letter because the church, the early church, is having some things questioned. Not questions, questioned. They're attacking the character of who Jesus is. And why? Why? Because if Satan can plant seeds of doubt that distort and undermine our view of who Jesus is, the fruit of that doubt will lead us to our death. He doesn't have to do much work after that. If he can plant doubt, dread, confusion, if he can undermine and distort who Jesus is to us, his work's done. Then he just stirs the pot and steps back and watches it boil and bubble over. So how can we discern? How can we defend ourselves from deception and lies? How do we defend against deception and lies? Man, you talk about deception. We see that happening right now. I remember in um, history, not just in high school, but in college when we looked at World War II. World War II was a, a great, great instance to look at propaganda. How propaganda was used to manipulate to deceive, to get the masses to do what the, the overarching powers that be wanted them to do. The things that we believed about our enemy human being and take their life. But when you remove their humanity and you just see them as a little demon, a little devil, easy. And that's what we see happening today. People are demonizing one another. Honestly, if we undermine the character of Jesus, and it's going on, and it's gotten worse, is it any wonder there's so much apathy, or even us, the bride of Christ? So, to ask a kind of obvious question, if we don't want to be blind as bats in the dark, what do we do? You turn on the light, like that light that's just burning a hole through my retinas right now. (laughs) But I'm not gonna move. Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> on a side note, I remember moving up here. I was thinking, oh, depression's gonna be a thing. Because where I grew up, you know, we have sun like 345 days out of the year. Bakersfield, right? It's on the surface of the sun. Anyway, I move up here, yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm moving up to the land of granola and hippies and darkness and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And some of that's true. All that to say, man, I got to soak that, uh, that sun in. I remember going, I don't feel depressed, but I feel like my eyeballs are shriveling up into their orbital sockets. Soak it in. If I can't see you by the end of this, you'll know why though, okay? <laughs> I'm blinded by the light. And I pray that we would be blinded in a good way by his light so, because they don't have the light. This is why more and more are departing the fellowship of faith in Jesus what we hear oftenly coined as people leaving the church. They're leaving the fellowship of faith in Jesus. Because our faith is not, again, like I said, an independent, one-way relationship. It's here and it's here. Again, John addresses that throughout this letter. People are leaving the fellowship of faith because they're not walking in the light of his word. Living by God's word gives us fellowship with him. Let me say that again. Living by his word gives us fellowship with him. To live by it. Not just show up and read it, but to live by it. There are a lot of themes. Three themes that we're going to see throughout this letter. One is the light. In verse 5 it says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Second theme we see is the lies. And we see this pop up throughout the scripture here. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Pretty bold. And then the love. We've got the light, the lies, and the love. Chapter three, verse one. See how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And we are, for this reason. was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word us. Now, again, I've said this is a letter. I can see everyone here, I can't see anyone here. <laughs> this is a letter, it's not a book, it's not a textbook. This is a letter. How many of you have started a letter out like that though? What was from the beginning? What we have heard, it's a proclamation. There's no dear Abby, okay? Who's he writing to if this is a letter? Why does John start his letter more like an eyewitness testimonial than an actual personal letter? Here's the first reason. Because his encouragement is from a real personal relationship with Jesus. If you go, you know what, why don't we do that? Go over to John. Chapter one, verse one. Let's look at the obvious. All of us Bible students are going, this sounds awfully familiar, and it should. In John chapter one, verse one, John writes in his gospel account, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that, he, that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What we've seen and heard in the beginning was the word. Go ahead and go back to 1 John. What was from the beginning, what we have seen and heard, what we have seen with our eyes, looked at and touched with our hands. He's not speaking in metaphors or allegories. This is a letter from a real guy to real people about a real person. He says concerning the word of life. And growing up, I was taught if you capitalize something, that's usually a name or a title. The word is capitalized here in our English translation so that we know we're not talking about something, but someone. The claim is preach. We preach to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John writes this from a personal perspective about a personal relationship he has with the person, Jesus Christ. The reason I point this out is because we can talk God. We can quote theologians. We can even memorize scripture. We can do all of that. But if our faith is only knowledge without love, 1 Corinthians 13, two says, we are nothing. Not we can just do nothing, we are nothing. Jesus showed up, as we all know, meeting with a lot of know it alls who were nothing. Their lives came to nothing because, for all of their knowledge, they did not have love. And as it's been said, and we'll see it again through this letter love is not something, love is someone. His name is Jesus. Light is not, he's the universe. We lift up our prayers and thoughts to the universe. That's not God. The universe didn't come down to us. The God who made the universe came down to us. He came down in such a way that people saw him. People heard him. People touched him. John is describing the enormity of God in such personal terms. What does that tell us about who this God is? How is John able to do this? Because he personally knows God, personally. I was talking with my wife and she was talking about how she's been taking our children here at the bridge through the book of Acts. And when you look at everything Paul went through, all the way down to his his final moments, if you will, of his life, he's warned there are some folks and brothers and sisters who have had a prophecy from God tell him, if you go down to Jerusalem like you plan on, you're gonna be bound up. You'll be arrested and it will end in your death. We won't see you again. Yet Paul continues forward. He doesn't stop. He doesn't sidestep. He doesn't take a detour. He doesn't circumvent it. Why? I tell you what, when you are looking at life down the barrel of a gun, there's a lot more confidence and courage when you know you're not the only one. Paul wasn't alone. This place this morning or watching online, if you have a relationship with God, remember you have the ear of the infinite one who made the universe, you have his ear. Like my kids have my ear, too. haven't been children for a long time, if you will. But, but to him, that didn't come out the way I meant it, by the way. <laughs> well, I'll just say this. Steve Armitage always joked with my brother, he knows where I'm going with this. Full head of hair, though. It might be white, but he's got all of his, which is more than I can say for myself. So. Amen. <laughs> anyway, we need to remember who we are. And that is, again, why John is writing this letter. We're children. No matter how long we've lived on this earth, no no matter how much we know, the question is, who do we know? Not what do we know? John writes to encourage the saints that they have a relationship with God as their father, not just this omnipotent being that demands their homage, but as their heavenly father. Again, we can memorize scripture, we can quote theologians, we can sound very spiritual, but again, there were people who walked the face of this earth who sounded really spiritual, and then Jesus revealed that for all of their knowledge, they came up short. I'm gonna ask you a question. I think first service is gonna get this better than second service. You remember the old hymns? Like, what a friend we have in Jesus Remember that? Or, he walks with me and he talks with me and tells me I am his own. Not even through my first page and I'm going to start crying. That's so personal. That is the God that those of us who know Jesus, we know him personally on that level. But I wanna ask all of us something. If someone asked you why you personally believe in Jesus, pick on my sister, she's quiet and reserved, but Jackie, every time I've heard her testimony, you know what gripped her heart? Is when she saw people talking to God as their father, singing to him in her presence. And she went, I don't fully understand it. I don't get it, but I want that. Showing up to a class to learn information isn't as appealing as getting to meet someone who's special and getting an opportunity to not only meet them, but you get an opportunity to have a relationship with that person. I remember when I was in Turkey, I may have shared this story before I met uh, met a college student from Turkmenistan. He was studying in Turkey. Don't get the two confused. Um, And He and I met one day at about one o'clock, and from one o'clock until about two the next morning, nonstop conversation, all spirit. Who I believed in, and I had taken some classes on apologetics, I knew who I believed in. I knew what I believe is right, and it is the truth. Not because I come from America or because I know more than he did, but because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But we got into debates, arguments. They'd come up and go away throughout our conversation. By the end, I went, I finally had him. I made a point and he went, he was quiet, and he said, you know, Jacob, you're right. I was like, I am? I mean, I am. <laughs> and he said, but I'm still Muslim. And I went, what? You just said it out of your own mouth that what I told you is true, and you don't have a comeback for that. So why are you choosing to continue to go down a road on something, in something, in something, that doesn't measure up, that doesn't hold water. It's interesting. I gave him a gift that evening. I had a Fresno State Bulldog hat, and we had these copies of what they call in Turkish, Injil, which means New Testament. I put it in the hat, and I slid it across. I said, Muhammad, no matter how we end tonight, I just want you to know, I still want to be your friend, and I don't mean to offend you. And as my friend, I want to give you something that... Having now spent 12, 13 hours talking, you know is near and dear to my heart. I wanna give you something from a friend to a friend and what you do with it is up to you, but I wanna give this to you. And he opened it up and he saw, he went, thank you. Two weeks went by, I didn't hear anything from him. And then one day I got a text. Mm -hmm. Not a text. An instant mail, all Starbucks stores in the world and it was gorgeous. We showed up there and I wasn't sure what to expect. Things were a little tense when we left last time. And as we started talking, he said, I, I asked him, I'm curious, there's no pressure, Muhammad, but have you been interested to read that at all? He said, actually, I have been. And he read it and he said, I, I'm still a Muslim. And I went, okay. He said, but as I read about Jesus in this, I've never read, I've never seen a love like this. This is coming from my Muslim friend who is dogmatic. He's Muslim. But he couldn't deny the personal, real love that Jesus is described having and functioning in and manifesting with the relationships and the people and interactions he has. Do we have religious theology or do we have a personal relationship? Here's the second reason here. For this letter, some were leaving the fellowship. So, for the first reason, is to exhort, to encourage, to equip, to remind them, to strengthen their confidence in the one they know, not know about the one they know. And the second reason, as I've already alluded to, is some were leaving the fellowship because of lies, intelligent tricks that had deceived and disturbed some people's faith in Jesus. Look at First John chapter two, eighteen. John says he writes. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Now, don't apply this to the bridge and go, huh, someone leaves the bridge? They're not a Christian. Remember, we're just one member of the larger body of Christ. But look at verse 22. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. This is the other major reason John wrote this letter. Some theologians believe these lies that were that John's alluding to came from early forms of Gnosticism. Gnosticism didn't really come about until the second century. But first century, we're talking the first hundred years, less than a hundred years that the church was established and growing. Gnosticism wasn't even a, a solidified thing quite yet. Gnosticism grew out of Greek ideas based on higher knowledge. They considered themselves enlightened based on secret knowledge they acquired. They adopted Greek ideas, mingled them with scriptures here, that spirit and matter, it's debased because it's created. So then the question is, I mean, right off the get-go, we're going Gnostics. So these people still claimed to be Christian in some form, shape or form. But it wasn't the same. This is why their faith was being disturbed because the believers are going, well, what's true? Is Jesus who we've always known him to be? Or are they telling us something we don't know? This is shaking the foundation of their faith. First of all, we know what the Gnostics believed doesn't add up because we know from Genesis 1 that our universe, our created universe, and everything in it, came from God, John chapter one, verse three. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. If it doesn't exist, it's because he didn't make it. And whatever exists is because he made it. Well, John chapter four, verse 24, Jesus was talking with the woman at the well, and he says, God is spirit. What does that tell us? This is real simple. God is spirit, and our natural physical material world was created out from the spirit the spirit came first the chicken or the egg the physical or the spiritual the spiritual came first now we have the advantage of having the new testament completely and this is something rick said in that first teaching he said we have it all there is no reason our faith should be shaken so why are so many people's faith shaken again because they don't read his, put it all together. And it's contradictory and it doesn't add up. So when you go ask someone on the street here in this country, what does it mean to be a Christian? You're going to get a different answer practically every time. You know what I also find ironic is if you go ask someone who doesn't believe in God, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they go, well, they go to church and they read the Bible. You go ask Christians in this country, and sometimes we're more confused about who we are and how to be who we are than the lost are in the world. We have no reason to have doubt or confusion or be shaken in our faith. We have the Spirit of God, and we have his word in its entirety. Now, the question is then, how did Gnostics get around this? It's like, how do you explain the created world then? If the Spirit didn't make it, then where did it come from? They got around this by making up lesser gods who were separate enough from their spiritual origins that they could interact with the physical. You already see how they're starting to fudge it? We have a movie that just came out. Rick mentioned it. I've watched it. I don't like it either. It's called Eternals by Marvel. I said this when I was teaching through uh, 2 Timothy back in September. We need to be really careful what we expose our kids to because our entertainment is educating us whether we realize it or not. And if you watch the movie Eternals, there are these cosmic beings who create lesser cosmic beings, they're called Eternals, and the Eternals interact with humanity, but only to a limited extent. Meanwhile, the greater gods don't interact or touch humanity at all. It's in our entertainment, and it's an idea that goes back to pagan mythology as far back as human record goes. And without even realizing it, we're adopting it. Mormonism, or the Latter-day Saints as they call themselves, they teach something along these lines. Jesus and Satan. Well, they say Lucifer, our brothers. They came from Elohim, who is God the Father. And he created them. God, lesser God, lesser gods, lesser gods. It's just pantheism. Others suggest that John was writing against another group called the Docetists. And I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing that right. But their name means seemed. It seemed. That's where their name comes from. They held the view that Jesus only seemed to be the Christ. Does that sound familiar at all? The first century, Sorinthus argued that the Christ came down, listen to this, The Christ came down on Jesus at baptism, but left Jesus before crucifixion, and so there was no lasting union of the Christ with Jesus. This is why we read the Old Testament, because when you read through the Old Testament, it becomes clear. The Christ is not separate from Jesus. They're one and the same. He's Jesus, the Christ. Before we start laughing at this this as preposterous and ridiculous, it's from these lies that stories like the Da Vinci Code have been inspired. You guys remember the Da Vinci Code? I remember it. It was all the rage when I was in college. They've infused these lies into our entertainment and they preach that Jesus never died. It just seemed like he did. See, we're looking at people who were promoting these lies and deceptions back in the first century of the church, basically at its inception, and we treat it like it's ancient, like it's irrelevant, it's obsolete. It's not. The devil doesn't have a new playbook. He uses the same thing over and over. He just repackages it differently. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul writes, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. If it only seemed that Jesus died on the cross, but he never did, then our faith is empty and worthless. We are to be pitied most among all people. Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, later turned movie, was supposedly fiction. And this one got me riled up in college. Supposedly it's fiction, but then when people talked about it, they talked about it like, oh, I wonder if that's possible. And then they find these older writings that popped up throughout the medieval eras. The Gnostic Gospels come back up. It prompted people's curiosity to give serious consideration of these ideas. And what did it? Our entertainment. This is why I get on this soapbox, realize just how much what they're bringing in from just a harmless TV show or just a make-believe movie really affects how they perceive the world. It's shaping their worldview. Are we showing them who the truth is so that he shapes their worldview so that they know what the truth is so that they have confidence in a world full of confusion. Islam, interestingly teaches that Judas was made to look like Jesus dying on the cross instead. Again, it seemed like Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't really. If the Christ had no lasting union with Jesus, then let's explain why in Matthew three sixteen through 17, God anoints Jesus with the Holy Spirit and in an audible voice declares Jesus as his son. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit of God, Acts chapter 10, verse 38 tells us again. And the question is, do we see the Spirit of God ever depart from Jesus? We don't see it pop up in any of the scriptures. Let me just address this. They call them the Gnostic Gospels, which is a contradiction in terms in and of itself because gospel means good news. The Gnostic gospels isn't good news at all. It's lies, it's garbage, it's trash. And they weren't written until long afterwards. Why didn't they take hold in the early church? Because the early church had folks like John going, folks, we've seen Jesus, we've talked with him. This is not what he said. The Gnostics, these Gnostic know-it-alls didn't have much of an audience because there were enough witnesses to go, they're lying to you. They weren't there. They're telling you things that aren't even true. People go, huh, the Gnostics. (coughs) For example, the the Gospel of Thomas isn't true. How do we know? If you've ever wondered how did we get the Bible, just a real quick side note, (coughs) we look at eye testimony accounts. Being a guy who studied history in college, we looked at converging evidence. How do you know if a specific event or person really existed as people are saying? For example, if you get five different people, sorry again, dry throat, it's allergy season apparently. Um, If you get five different people coming from different perspectives who don't know each other and they're all coming to the same conclusion about a person or a circumstance, reason has it, that's probably what happened. The Gnostics break away from obvious rational deduction because the Gnostics didn't match any of the other testimonies. That's why they're not in the Bible to begin with because they were quickly identified as frauds, fraudulent, falsehood, aka lies. But again, how can we know the lie? By knowing the truth. John is reconfirming and explaining the truth This analogy will probably be with printing money because the counterfeits have gotten better and better and better at it the longer it's been around. Interestingly enough, the longer God's word's been around, the better the counterfeits have gotten. Antichrist basically is counterfeit. He's not just opposite to God. He's trying to look like God without actually being God. And we have these Antichrist philosophies coming in that sound mostly true but there are some small yet huge differences. And if we're not students of his word and we don't have his spirit to actually illuminate the eyes of our hearts, we're going to be led astray. We will be deceived. Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, going back to the question I had posed earlier, did Jesus's anointing ever leave him as Serenthus argued? No, we don't see it in the scriptures once. Once the spirit alighted on him, done. How do we know that? How do we know? Well, maybe God did it and we just don't read about it. Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is applied to us, but it's just as true for Jesus as it is for us. Again, if Jesus did it and he said it, it's true and applicable for us. He came to show us the way. Do we know his way well enough that when someone puts up a post sign and a detour and says, well, this one's right next to it, it's virtually the same. Oh, can we tell the difference between a deceptive detour and the real deal? Romans eleven twenty nine 29 makes it, clear. once it's sealed and done, there's no taking it back. There's no departing, okay? <clears throat> you know what that means for us? It means we have anointing from God. If we're children of God, as Jesus is the son of God, we have an anointing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 121, now he who establishes us with with you, that's an important thing, he establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Rick, just touched on adultery not too long ago. Now, I'm not gonna get into that. That's not the point here. But this is why marriage is so important and sacred. And this is why we teach our children the the sacredness of marriage because of what it represents, who it represents. Jesus doesn't break his promises. So no matter how faithless I am, he's still faithful. He's good and he's true. Amen? Which means, if he has sealed us, imagine a wedding ring. He's sealed us, he doesn't take it back and go, mm, I changed my mind. He doesn't do that. One of John's primary reasons for writing this letter to the early church was so that they would have confidence in who they are to the Lord. I wanna repeat something. So they would have confidence in 2.20. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. He's writing to people who know the truth. He's here to confirm, to affirm, to strengthen, to remind them of who they are. Interestingly, what's one of the battles in our culture wars these days? It's identity. I identify as this. How do you identify? And why do people, how are people labeling themselves? What what is the reason for their labels? It's based on how they feel or what they do. Well, I like this color, so I must be this gender. Well, it doesn't matter how you and I feel. It's not that your feelings aren't real. We experience real feelings. But feelings are not truth. I'll go a step further, fact is not truth. There are scientific facts that we find out later, oh, that wasn't entirely true. (laughs) Because science is based on our understanding, not his. It's our attempt, it's our desire to understand the created world so that we can know who he is. We get to know who he is by what he's made and how he's made it. One of our battles that we see raging, especially in young people, is identity. Why do they struggle with identity? Because they don't know who they are based on who their heavenly father says they are. These Gnostic know-it-alls claim to possess secret information, but as 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1 says, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. We see Jesus or John constantly appeal to love. And again, love is not a feeling. Love is not a thing, love is a person. If you wanna know what true love is, know Jesus. If you wanna know how to love your wife, know Jesus. If you wanna know how to love your kids, truly love them, know Jesus. He is love. Apart from him, there is no love. Our faith, well, let me ask this. Is our faith built on knowledge about Jesus? Or is our faith based on a personal revelation of who he is to us personally according to his word? That's why young people after they graduate leave I've, I've heard this many times over the years. People are saying we're losing we're losing the youth in their late teens and 20s and I would say no we're not. We lost them already. When they got independence and sovereign will to do what they want to, they left. But we, lo- we lost them before that. It starts when they're this high. It starts when they're young. And I know I'm speaking to a lot of folks who are moved from where we had been, which is right next to the bus stop. <clears throat> I took a bus all four years to school because it was on the other side of town. So like 20 minute drive one way. We'll let the school district bus us out. So anyway... Coming home, we'd get dropped off. We'd walk a quarter mile to our grandparents. We'd come in. My grandma would have half sandwiches, some chips and salsa, or some vegetables and fruit. You'd sit down, and my grandma and grandpa would ask always, so what do you know? It was like their way of saying hi, but to start conversation. And I, we could never leave that house without my grandma always somehow bringing our conversation into a spiritual, a spiritual plane. It always came back to Jesus, always. I haven't forgotten that. How many times have we heard Rick talk about his grandma? Grandparents, you have an incredible ability and mantle in the lives of your grandchildren. So if you're looking at your life going, man, I shoulda, I coulda, you still can. Time's not up. We need our grandparents. My father-in-law spent a bunch of time with my son yesterday. And when they're not doing stuff with their Bapa, they're gardening with their Gemma. They're interacting the whole time. My kids went to a homeschool co-op and for their presentation, they memorized, what is it, the first 12 verses of John? Yeah? <clears throat> and guess who helped them memorize it? Their Gemma, their grandma, grandparents. We have still, I just wanna tell you that this culture might say you're washed up, used up, irrelevant, obsolete, but I would say that is the furthest thing from the truth. And John, when he writes this, he's an old man. I'll just let that stand for what it is. Is our faith built on knowledge about Jesus or on a personal revelation of who he is to us? Is our faith like a textbook or a letter. Why am I spending so much time just on two verses? Because again, I want to remind us, John wrote what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and what we've touched with our hands. Is our faith a textbook or is our faith a letter? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, you, Paul writes, are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested That you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us toward God. This was based on relationship. Look at verse three with me. He goes on and says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He mentions the word fellowship twice in this one verse. And like I said, the word fellowship pops up four times in the first seven verses. And two of them are right here in this verse. John starts this letter by giving two of the four reasons for this letter right out others. Now, as Rick has mentioned not too long ago, John here isn't using the royal we. Okay, he's not talking about himself in the third person. I do that sometimes. My wife goes, Jake, can you stop doing that? I don't know why I do it. I'm talking to her and then I propose something and I refer to her. She's right next to me, Cam, like she's another person. She's like, Jake, that's weird. Don't talk like that. John's not being weird like Jake. He's not saying we to talk about himself. He doesn't say us referring to himself. He's referring to other literal people here. And he says, by way of extension, he's not the only one who saw Jesus. He's not the only one who heard Jesus. He is not the only other one who touched Jesus. When Paul, and I wish I had the reference here, but when Paul is writing letters to the churches, he says, if you don't believe my testimony, go ask the witnesses. What witnesses? The 500 other people who saw Jesus at his resurrection or after his resurrection I'm not making this stuff up. There are hundreds of people who can give eyewitness testimony of seeing Jesus after his death, walking resurrected. This is real. God is real. The spiritual isn't ethereal. It's more real than the flesh on our bones. But Jesus came to us to make God personally real to us. That is what John is reminding them. It's believed though, that unlike 2 John, which is described to a particular congregation or church fellowship like this. Or unlike 3 John which was specific to a person, 1 John was written for the early church as a whole. Theologians and historians and even archaeologists believe that this letter that we hold in our, our our hands this morning was circulated among the seven churches in Asia. You Bible students remember who the seven churches in Asia are? Where have we heard this before? revelation in revelation coincidence? I don't think so we don't call ourselves here at the bridge a church we call ourselves a fellowship and why is that? because we believe based on God's word again God's word if you want to know who you are look at what your father says about who you are based on his word we're one member of his larger body the church one member The bridge isn't the church. We're just a member of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. We are not the body. Rick is not the head. Jesus is the head, and we're a member of the body. Why don't we call our small group ministry small group? I already mentioned this earlier. It's not for semantics, and it's not to come up with a new catchy way, because honestly, home group fellowship is a mouthful. Small group is a lot easier and quicker to say So why do we do it? I'll tell you, it's intentional. Just in the fact that our name is intentional, the Bridge Christian Fellowship, a fellowship of Christians. These aren't Bible study groups. They're not Bible study groups. You don't show up, and the the goal is not to show up and have another inductive Bible study. It's not to go deeper in the word for the sake of studying the word. We will, we do. They're also not exclusive cliques like, oh, well, you gotta sign a membership here or you gotta be on the in crowd to be a part of this. There are also, these home group fellowships are not social clubs. And I've heard that, right? What were, what were you doing last week? Oh, I was fellowshipping with, and we talk about some event. Jesus never gets mentioned once. It's like everybody we hung out with could have been totally not Christian and it would have been the same. These home group fellowships are not social clubs. They're not exclusive cliques. They're not Bible study groups. They're deeper. They're more than that. Is there socialization? Absolutely. Do we study the Bible? You better believe it. But it's more than that. That's why if what we do here on Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings is only ever study the Bible and that's it, we're missing the ship. We're missing the boat. We're like the Pharisees going to the yeshivas, quoting, they did the same thing, quoting theologians. But instead of Spurgeon or Tozer, they're quoting the Talmud. We need to be careful not to fall into the same trap. Acts chapter 2. Why don't you guys go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 2. We're looking at fellowship to the initiated. <clears throat> Acts chapter It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship there's that word again, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. People go, how how do you do church? Is it a corporate like this or is it in someone's home? And I would say, yes, it's not either or, it's both and. They met in the temple, they met in the synagogues, and they met in each other's home. And what were they doing? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? The Bible, (laughs) We're reading 1 John, it's in the Bible. It was their teaching. What was it based off of? The Old Testament. We've gotta know the old if we wanna understand the new. It's still relevant today. And they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. What does that word mean? I'm gonna look at it a little bit today, but again, this is way bigger than we have time for this morning. And then to the breaking of bread into prayer. They were having meals together and constantly giving thanks to the Lord, but they were breaking bread, what we did this morning. As I've gotten older, continuing to walk with Jesus, I'm realizing more and more how significant this is. I might have a brother or sister in South Korea. We don't speak the same language. We don't like the same foods. We look completely different, but we can take this together. This is a unifying element that reminds us who we are. And it's not based off of our creed, it's not based off of our ethnic background, the language we speak. This is bigger than all of that. And so I'm encouraged to know that all of our home groups have taken this together, at least on a semi-regular basis, why? Because if not for that, or I should say what that represents, why are we here this morning, right? Why are we getting together? Because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And prayer. Prayer. It's one of the most unpopular reasons for people to get together, right? Who wants to go to a prayer meeting? Right, Jackie? Oh, Jackie's like, sign me up. (laughs) If you want to understand prayer, again, go to his word. We don't pray because it's tradition. We pray because that's who That's what he modeled for us. These things make up the bare bones, the basics of how we function as his children. This fellowship is rooted in God's word. This fellowship is rooted in breaking bread and it's rooted in prayer. Fellowship though, what does that mean? The word fellowship in Greek is koinonia. All of you pretty much know that. The letter of 1 John was written in koinos, which is a derivative of koinonia. It was the street Greek, it's what everybody spoke. Think about this. John didn't write the first letter in a highfalutin language. He didn't write it in an ancient form of Greek. He didn't write it so that only theologians and Bible scholars could understand it. He wrote it in the most simple way, in the most basic language. Anyone and everyone could read it and understand it. If you could read, you could understand this. And it's not a coincidence. Acts two thirty nine says, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Jesus doesn't play favorites. He wants anyone and everyone who will take him. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, go therefore. Right before he left to go back to the Father, he told his guys, you go now, wherever you go, and make disciples, make student followers of all nations, aka all ethnicities, all people types, baptizing them, literally immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not names. My wife pointed that out. It's not three different names. It's one name. Now look at Acts chapter two, verse 44. Acts 2, 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. There's that word again, common, and it means koinos in the Greek, koinonia, where we get fellowship and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, some of you red blooded Americans might read this and go, where are you going with this, Jake? Are you one of those woke millennials? No, I'm not. Hang on. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And it says in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place. The community around them is our differences together in common. Think about the people who are addressed in these epistles. In one letter, Paul writes to a slave owner and a slave together. And he says, you guys are brothers. Treat each other right. How do you do that? Only the gospel will show, will reconcile a slave owner and a slave together to be brothers. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can give us fellowship to be together. Key difference from the socialism being promoted in our world these days, people here weren't being forced to give what they had. They gave freely to all that had need. So it's not hey, you make this amount of money and you have these things, so I wanna have everything that you have too. We should be equal. That's not what the Bible teaches. Whoever has need, Paul says, in the condition you were saved, don't try to get out of that condition. You were saved where you're at. Now, I'm not saying he promotes, you know, stay impoverished, starving, you know, barely making a living on the curb. That's not what he's saying. But we think because it's being taught, again, in the churches that your best life is now and God wants to give you all these things and make you rich. That's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus said, the student's not greater than the master. I'm living high on the hog compared to what my master had to live with. I have a home, I have a car. My wife has a better car, but I have a car. with others who aren't like them. Why? I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're not gonna dissect this, but this is gonna give you, again, an overarching understanding of what fellowship is. Why would all these people who have nothing, nothing in common, at least as we would see it, freely give things, sell their property to have money to feed others? Why would they do this? It says in verse four, For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So here it is. Yes, separate but equal. The hand is not the same as the foot. Let me just make that clear. Tongue in cheek, we're not talking Jim Crow laws. Anyone who gets to know Cam and I, first glance, we're not the same. Okay, she's smarter and better looking. Yeah, but I'm not doing. I'm not doing that, you know, because to, to self-deprecate. She is more intelligent, but as I remind my wife, but I'm more wise, and they're different. <laughs> and then, yeah, and I, no one's more humble than Jake. <laughs> huh? We're different. Cam does things that I don't. We have different strengths. We have different abilities. But we're the same value. And that's, it's still so. Maybe they've been walking with Jesus longer than I have. And they have things that I learned from. But one reason, if anyone gets to know less, one reason people fall in love, fall in love with less and Donna is because they don't wear superiority. While we're talking or praying, they go, oh, that's good. They're always open to learn. And it's not false humility, it's true. Continue on with me. He says, since we have gifts, verse six, that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches, in his teaching, or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, this is a spiritual gift, folks, with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy, compassion, with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And here it is, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, Devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. One person can't do that. One thing I've loved being here, you get to know folks who have been here for a while when hard things come up. You know how they, how they refer to the bridge? They don't call it the fellowship. They don't go, oh, my fellowship. Think fellowship, think family. And you know what? My son helps my father-in-law do yard work. It's pretty sweet to watch. Does, his, does my father-in-law know a lot more about yard work? Absolutely. But he, they're doing it together. And as they do it together, he's showing, he's giving wisdom and understanding to my son and how to do things. And my son is giving things to my father-in-law that he can't do, like bend over. <laughs> I laugh. My lower back is not feeling so hot this morning. You know, Judah does things for me. Cam's giving me a side look sometimes. I'm sitting on the couch. Judah sits down. I'm like, "Hey, Judah, could you go get that for me?" Sure, Dad. Cam goes, "You could have gotten that." I'm like, "Yeah, it's good for his legs." (laughs) We, I depend on my kids for stuff. I, I say that as a joke, but I actually depend on my kids for stuff. We share. We share together, which means if I drop the ball, they're affected, and vice versa. We're connected to each other. We all have a part to play. Why is John writing this letter? So that we would have fellowship with God and with each other because he called us to, he died, he gave us his body to be his body. The hands and feet, the ears, eyes, nose and mouth, head, shoulders, knees and toes and everything in between. We're the body of Christ. That means we share in things together. This is, he still makes it happen. I'm saying, yeah, some of you are like, what did you just say, Jacob? That's anathema. He doesn't need us. That's not what Jesus said when he was with his 12. Now, what was the prime reason for his 12? So that they would be with him. Mark chapter three. That was the number one reason. Why does God have fellowship with us? Not because, it's not because he needs us. It's because he wants us. My father-in-law is very competent. He can mow that lawn like a NASCAR driver, man. He's got that thing down. It's fun to watch, and I mean watch. I'll look up from the top window. I'm like, waking up, and he's like. But all this to say, he's been mowing lawns for years. He didn't need my son, but he wants my son. He wants him with him. And as a result, he's imparting things into my son because should the Lord tarry? My father-in-law will go home to be with Jesus. Well, who's gonna mow the lawn? <laughs> Not me. He's nine, so the, the handlebars were up here. He's like pushing, and he did it all. Don't underestimate the kids. They have a part to bring. What connected a variety of diverse, diversely different people? The spirit. It wasn't just a book. Because if all we do is read this for information, again, we come up short. This, Jesus said to the guys, to the Pharisees, you guys search the scriptures thinking they give you eternal life. It's these that testify to you about me. Like Peter wrote in Acts 2.39, the promise is for you, it's for our children and it's for anyone and everyone the Lord calls to himself. This letter wasn't a dissertation on discerning the doctrines of demons. This letter was a love letter of invitation and encouragement to have fellowship, to invite us to fellowship. The fellowship of the church isn't because of pastors. It's not because of parishes, and it's not because of parishioners. This fellowship is because of the person of Jesus. Or I look over a crowd of people. We are all very different. I'm probably a lot more different than everybody else here, except for Deb. We're both really different. Love you, Deb. (laughs) He invites us to join him. And as we join him, you know what he's called us to do? To invite others, to join us in following him. So I'm not making disciples of Jake. I'm making disciples of Jesus. Why? So that we would be with him. Jesus invites us into his fellowship. We're going to look at this last verse, and it's going to go quick. I promise. Second reason for this letter. Look at verse four. Go back to 1 John verse four. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Joy. We haven't even talked about the devil. Where's eschatology, Jake? Where's the end times? We'll get there. But that's not the primary reason for this letter. The second reason is different. Joy transcends the circumstances or the feelings at the moment. I'm talking to a crowd of people who understand that largely. How do you have joy when you wake up in the morning and you ache? And when you go through your day and you can't get the things done that you used to, and you're like, Jake, don't talk down to me. Why are you giving me a hard time? That was me this morning. How do you have joy when you wake up early in the morning because you woke up for no good reason and you're trying to do things in the kitchen for your wife, and you pull a cutting board off of the drying rack, and the whole thing hits the floor. (laughs) And she walks down the hall at the right time. You okay, Jake? I'm like, joy in that moment. Or when you take time early in the morning to fix breakfast for your kids. Cook sausage, your wife made homemade bread the day before, you're grilling it on the, the skillet, hand-peeling oranges, like how I'm trumping this up. <laughs> you put your heart and soul into this breakfast, and then your son would rather stay in bed and moan at you when you try and wake him up. How do you have joy when he's not grateful for what you did? Because it's not happiness, it's joy. I take joy in doing things for my family because they're my family, not because for what they can give me. The second reason for this letter is so that their joy would be made complete. It's calm delight. It's content gladness. The idea of joy being made complete is like cramming a net. If you look up the word joy, and Jesus is like leveling up. It's leveling up. But for us, it's like cramming a net. Luke 5, verse four. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. That's what joy in Jesus looks like. You got so much of it, it spills out into the lives of those next to you. And it's so much that it spills out of theirs. That's what joy in Jesus looks like. This invitation to joy in John's letter is so fulfilling that it's uncontainable. It spills out and it affects others with God's blessings. And that's the second and last point. I've only got two. I'm a simple man. Jesus desires to fill us, overflowing with joy. My brother, Ty, was born to be married. My wife knows this. I'm I'm telling you the honest truth. He was born, he came out of the womb looking for a wife, planning kids. I was like, I know statistically I might get married one day. Having kids, that's in another universe. I can't even comprehend that. But not my brother. After some painful and awkward dates, my brother met Tracy. Tracy isn't like any other woman he'd ever met. She wasn't like other girls. And I loved watching Tracy love my brother. She admired him. She loved him. She respected him. And of course, it wasn't long until they were engaged. And I was really happy for him. My brother, my only brother, was having one of the greatest desires of his life realized. What really sealed the deal, though, was the day of his wedding. And I got to be his best man. And I got to watch Ty marry his bride. Start a new life, and I got to watch this woman receive my brother full of joy. Here's an interesting, fun tidbit. Growing up, um, not all the time, but sometimes the girls my brother liked ended up liking me, so they go talk to him about me. Right, Cam? Yeah, not fun. She's the only girl who couldn't give a rip about who Jake was. I mean, she. We were friends. Nothing about me appealed to her. He's a nice guy, love Jesus, but no one's like Ty. In John 3:29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And man, did I decrease when Ty married Tracy so that our our joy may be made complete. Well, he's definitely referring to his fellow apostle disciples, okay? But John's also referring to his spiritual sisters who were closest to Jesus, who were part of their motley crew of misfits. They may not have been apostles, but they were every bit equal in terms of Jesus' friends and followers. And then there were others who followed Jesus, who weren't part of the closer inner circle, But John wrote this in reference to the we and us who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus, who touched Jesus, a bunch of people. John is writing here in this letter to people who never met Jesus. They're like us. They never met Jesus like John and others had. Do we realize that we have fellowship with Peter, James, and John? I've got fellowship with Tom Shorthouse, but he and I have fellowship with Peter. That's pretty wild to think about it. No time or distance can separate our fellowship. The hour in this letter isn't just John and his contemporaries. It's not just to the third and second generations of the church. This fellowship is us, for us. We share this with them. I want to finish by reading out of John 17. So would you turn there with me? John 17. Rick was apologizing for quoting parts of 1 John and his teaching. That's okay, Jake. I mean, Rick. I am gonna read out of the Gospel of John. Oh. Think relationship as we read this. John 17, verse 13. Jesus is praying this. He's praying this to the Father. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Who? not just as guys with him. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. Let me read that one more time. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Hear me carefully when I say this. I had this epiphany a year or so ago, but be careful when I say this. Jesus is saying that they may be, what does he say? That they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, I'm not saying and I'm not promoting, I'm not preaching or teaching that we become part of the Trinity, okay? My wife doesn't become Jake, thankfully, but the two shall become one, one flesh. That we would be one. God yearns and desires for us to have fellowship with him. But if we have accepted that fellowship with him, guess what? Like I said earlier, we're initiated into a fellowship with each other. What does that look like? What does it look like to have fellowship as Jesus's bride, as part of the church? We're going to look at that next week. We're going to start looking at it at least. Jesus has written to us, manifested in the flesh, so we could be one. We could be one in fellowship with him, with the Father, all of us together, so that our joy would be overflowing full and never ending. That is just as true for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine as it is for us this morning. I want to leave you with three questions. If you desire to have that kind of fulfilling relationship with Jesus and others, I would invite you to come forward and pray. If those on the prayer team want to go ahead and come forward, go ahead. Those on the worship team, go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and close out in a song here. But if you're hearing this and you're going, I want a relationship with Jesus. I want to have family. I want to be connected the way John writes about with his will, where two or three are gathered, it will be given. Pray in agreement as his children for his will. His will is that none would perish. But if you've been initiated into Jesus's fellowship, I wanna ask us all, myself included, what are we doing to feed and fuel this fellowship in our life? What are we doing to feed and fuel this fellowship? Because even though my father-in-law invited my son, my father-in-law Depends on my son to do work with him. To abide in Jesus is to be connected to each other. That's way bigger than a Sunday or a Wednesday morning or a Wednesday evening. I wanna encourage us all to bring our part. Follow Jesus together, together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word because your word, your word is life. And you didn't just write, us, write a letter to us. You came to write your letter on our hearts, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Not with ink, but by the Spirit of God. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would write your love, engrave your word on our hearts, and that it would affect our relationship with each other so that the world would see by the way we love each other that you truly are the Son of God sent by the Father.